Hey, good morning. Welcome to chapel. Um, hey, it feels like fall outside, and uh, that's a good thing. But here's what I know about fall. Um, we need to be outside. And so make sure you're taking, taking advantage of this time and getting outside as much as possible. Here's a few things happening this week outside that you want to do. Saturday, there's two things happening. There is a three-on-three basketball tournament happening this Saturday on the apartment parking lots. There's a rock climbing trip going to McConnell's Mill this Saturday outside. No experience necessary. Tomorrow night, there's, or Friday night, there's going to be some campfires. Tomorrow night, there's a rec night. Um, just know there's things going on outside. You need to be active during this time and enjoy the fall. If you need a hammock, come see me. I've got some hammocks in my office that I'll loan out to you so you can just enjoy this weather. All right? Hey, um, after chapel today, the way, the way chapel is going to work today is we're going to do 117B as soon as, as Pastor Martin is done speaking. Once he's done speaking, we'll, we'll do 117B, and then you'll stay in your rooms to pray with your group. Okay, so 117B, and then you'll pray with your group. Enjoy uh, our, the beginning of chapel with new song. Well, good morning and welcome to chapel. Uh, today, uh, has, this week has been uh, a tough week, uh, but, but a good week. I stand here um, excited about the hope of what, what we get to live into 
as, a, as people who seek God's coming kingdom. Um, and in chapel this semester, we're looking at, at who God is. And, and so as you come to chapel, we just, uh, I just hope you can, you can take this time to, to, to slow down a little bit. In the, in the hustle of our lives, it's easy to, to let anxiety rule. It's easy to let fear rule. Um, but as Geneva people, we want the grace of God to rule. We want to honor others. And, um, and so it's important that we take time each week to slow down, to hear from God, uh, so that we can, so we can approach God and others um, with honor and with respect. And so as we come together, we're going we're to start as we are. I ask that you stand uh, and, and read the Apostles' Creed with me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And he sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to be praying Psalm 9 over us this morning. Please join me. We give thanks to you, Lord, with our whole heart. We will tell of all your wonderful deeds. We are glad and we exult in you. We will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When our enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained our just cause. You have sat on your throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked nations. You have made wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. You have established your throne for justice, and you judge the world with righteousness. You judge the people with uprightness. You are a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know you put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We sing praises to you, Lord. You sit enthroned in Zion. We will tell among the people of your deeds. For you who avenge blood are mindful of us. You do not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to us, Lord. See our affliction from those who hate us. O oh, you who lift us up from the gates of death, may we recount all of your praises and rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Lord, you have made yourself known. You have executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. 
Arise, Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Lord, you are righteous. You love righteous deeds. And one day we will behold your face. And we pray now together as Christ taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The scripture reading for today is Ephesians 1, 1 through 4, 13 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. In Psalm 2, you're going to hear God the Father speak to his servant, David the King. And you're going to hear clear fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So in a sense, God is also speaking to his son, the King. And he has words for us as well. If you have bulletins in your room, I invite you to read along with me. Uh, if you do not have bulletins, like in our room, I invite you to hear God's holy word. Either way, I invite you to stand as God's word is read. God's word in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You may be seated. morning, Geneva. It's good to be with you again. Uh, in, throughout this semester, um, during our time here in chapel, we're focusing on this, to- this topic of who God is. As Randon already said, who is God? Um, I read a quote a couple weeks ago uh, saying that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And uh, it's works out that way because by the way you live and the way you speak, the way you think, it actually reveals what you believe about God. And so what that means is that if you really want to change your life, you don't start with changing outward habits, but you start by thinking carefully about who God is. And as you come to understand and know God, that's going to change who you are. So who is God? Week one, God is holy. Uh, Last week, Calvin spoke about uh, God's name. And today we're thinking about God as the Trinity. God is Trinitarian. He is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it matters. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is found all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And we've already read a few passages that give us insight into the inner workings of the Trinity. God the Father speaking to God the Son. Um, you, You see there in Ephesians 1 how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, play role, the, a role in, our, uh, in the plan of our salvation. And uh, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28, uh, 18 through 20. Uh, we've entitled this passage, The Great Commission. And we're not going to be focusing so much on the Great Commission, but the way that Jesus speaks about how we are to baptize people really gives us the doctrine of the Trinity in one, uh, one verse. So... Uh, Listen as I read. Matthew 28. And Jesus said, or, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's God's word. May he give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe. The Trinity is one of the most important, yet one of the most confusing doctrines in the Christian faith. Uh, As I said, it's clearly taught throughout the scriptures and it's held fast to over the centuries. And it's the idea that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons are... Same in substance, equal in power and glory. Equally to be worshipped by the angels and by mankind. Uh, And these three persons, uh, although they are distinct, they are also so interwoven together that they are actually one God. Now there have been lots of attempts over throughout history, um, uh, attempts to try to illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity to help us sort of wrap our minds around it, but... Every illustration that we come up with ends up leading us to, I think, greater confusion rather than greater clarity. And so you might have heard uh, the doctrine of the Trinity explained with an egg. So you have the shell, and you have the, the egg white, and you have the yolk. Three 
parts, yet one egg. Um, there are lots of things wrong with that analogy. They're not the same in substance. They're not equal in every way. Um, there are parts of God, and, and the persons of the Trinity are not parts of God. They are fully God. Each has the fullness of God. Uh, another analogy is the analogy of the three-leaf clover, or the three-headed giant, or the three states of water, solid, liquid, and gas. Uh, we try to come up with all these illustrations to try to alleviate the confusion and mystery of the Trinity. Uh, Michael Reeves, in his good book, Delighting in the Trinity, he exposes these illustrations as very desperate and bizarre, and it really opens up the Christian faith to mockery. I believe it's led also to bad misconceptions of God. And so as we think about the Trinity, although I've just given you these illustrations, I want you to take those illustrations, set them aside, and uh, try not to use them as we formulate our understanding of the Trinity. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity was so complex and so confusing that it it really took the church nearly three centuries before they were able to articulate and solidify uh, our present-day understanding of God as he is. And we're indebted to our church fathers for their great work. And the reason why they had to solidify this doctrine is because there were so many heresies and errors during that time about who God is. And they, that forced the church to wrestle with this. Um, there was never really debate over whether God the Father was God. The question really rested in, is Jesus God? Is he God or is he man? And if he's God, how could we at the same time, hold to the clear teaching of Scripture that God is one. If God the Father is God and Jesus is God, how is there just one God? Well, there were various ideas that were floating around there at this time. Uh, there was a man named Sibelius who suggested that there is one God, but he simply reveals himself in three different ways, and he suggests that the Father existed in eternity past, but then the Father eventually became the Son, and he died on the cross, and then, and then the Son became the Holy Spirit, and he was poured out on all believers. Um, what we've come to call this is modalism, that there's just, there is one God, and he exists in one person, but he just sort of puts on different costumes throughout history in order to relate to us. So that was one heresy of the day. Another heresy, a far greater threat, came from a man named Arius. Arius taught that Jesus was the first and greatest created being, uh, not eternal and therefore not ultimately God. And this teaching gained a lot of support in the church, the early church. Um, and so there were lots of theories trying to wrestle with who God really is, trying to understand the nature of God. And so in response to these heresies, the, the leaders of the church, they met. Uh, a, a church council was called, and they, it was held in the city of Nicaea in 325. And at that council, one of the champions of biblical Christianity, a man named Athanasius, he led the way in developing the articulation of the Trinity as it's presented to us in the scriptures. And then it's solidified for us in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. About 50 years later, that, at the Council of Constantinople, this creed was revised a little more to clarify what we understand the Trinity to be. And, uh, of course, this morning we read, of the Apostles, we read the Apostles' Creed, or recited the Apostles' Creed, and uh, that has reference to the uh, Trinity, but it also uh, needed clarification. 
And so the Nicene Creed gives us a greater articulation of the Trinity. Well then, to give it some final polishing, um, Augustine carried the glorious doctrine to a final formulation. And here's how one theologian uh, summarized the teaching of Augustine on the Trinity. Listen to this. God's whole and undivided essence belongs uh, equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three persons of the Godhead, so that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each is fully God, while each has his own personal expression in role and activity of the one eternal and undivided divine essence. You got that? Recite that to someone. One God, three persons. As you can tell, we get very technical when we talk about the Trinity. We talk about it in a very precise way. It can be very theological, very heady. And it can just sort of feel that way. It sort of gets stuck in the intellectual realm. And it's not very, uh, in our minds, very stimulating spiritually. You know, we've talked about the holiness of God. We've talked about the name of God. We'll continue to talk about some of the other attributes, the glorious attributes of God. And it's a little easier to see how those attributes um, have relevance in your spiritual life. Those characteristics fill us with awe and comfort and encouragement and inspiration. Really, they help us to worship God. But understanding God as Trinity, it doesn't seem to have the same spiritual impact. And so, by and large, that's why we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Trinity. Well, my goal today is not really to prove the doctrine of the Trinity from the Scriptures. We're not going to be going through person by person how each person is uh, the fullness of God. Um, that that uh, Proving the Trinity is, is done very easily through a plain reading of the Scripture. But my goal today is to show how the Trinity is actually foundational and fundamental to your faith and life as a Christian. And that it's not just some dry, intellectual, heady, intellectual doctrine, but rather when you understand how the foundation of the Trinity, how foundational the Trinity is to your walk, the more you will learn to delight in Him, and the more you'll learn to worship Him. God is triune, and it matters. So I'm going to give you four foundational reasons why you, why I, why we should delight in the Trinity. Four foundational reasons. First, you need to understand the Trinity because it is fundamental to who God is. It is foundational to who God is. This is your God. It's your privilege to know him as he really is. Consider how amazing this is that the eternal, infinite God of the universe is your God. Uh, if you know Jesus Christ, then this one true God has reached into your life. He's uh, opened your eyes so that you can see him and know him as he really is, not just how we sort of uh, imagine him to be. He wants us to know him as he really is. And you know, knowing God is actually how Jesus himself defines eternal life. You know that great famous passage, John 3.16, the, uh, the, it's the summary of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We get eternal life through Jesus Christ. The eternal life is the reward for all those who believe. 
Well, Jesus later defines what the essence of eternal life is in John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The essence of eternal life isn't just a location or a happiness. It is the essence of knowing God as he is, and he is Trinitarian. You know, if, uh, if uh, a man and wife got married and um, the wife wanted to tell her husband all these things about her to, so that he would get to know her more and more, um, too many times guys can get lost in trying to understand women. And so if he just said, you know, it's too complicated, you know, I love you, but I just can't understand these things. You know, it's sort of a slap in her face. To really sort of just put up a wall and say, no, we know each other on this shallow level. We're going to leave it there. She wants to know. She, she, she's wanting this marriage to grow deeper. Well, in our relationship with God, sometimes we can do that with the Trinity. We, we, uh, we want to know certain aspects of God, things that we can grasp and wrap our minds around. But the Trinity is too confusing, so we'll just leave that be. You know, that's, that's unnecessary for my walk with the Lord. Well, what a slap in the face it is that God has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself as triune. Let's come to know him as he really is. We delight in the Trinity because it is, it is foundational to who he is. Uh, the second reason to delight in the Trinity is because it's foundational to your relationships here on earth. It's foundational to your relationships on earth. You know, you have friends and family and relationships and the only reason why you have those is because God is Trinitarian. If God did not exist as a Trinity, then we wouldn't have any relationships. You know, right after God created the world and everything in it, he created Adam. Adam, the first human being. And God created Adam in his image, and he placed Adam in the garden and told him to get to work, to name the animals, and to cultivate the earth. Well, after some time, Adam was doing his work, and after some time, God said, you know, it's not good that a man should be alone. And you wonder, well, why, why is it not good for Adam to be alone? You know, uh, my, my, I used to think that God um, simply, you know, recognized that Adam was lonely. You know, he needed a friend. No one wants to be lonely. But there's way more to it than that. Adam... And in him, all of humanity was created in the image of God, and God exists in three persons, which means that relationships are fundamental to the nature of God. He exists in relationship. You can't talk about God unless you talk about his relationship within himself, that holy trinity. Therefore, in order for humanity to accurately reflect the image of God, Adam needed to live in relationship. Adam by himself, could not reflect the image of God alone. He needed Eve, his equal. He had to live in relationship to reflect the relational character of God. The fundamental reason why we have relationships is because we are made in the image of the eternally relational God. The only reason why we can actually love one another is because God is love. And he is love because he's existed forever loving the persons within himself. God didn't create love when he created the world because as Trinity, love was an eternal attribute of his character. You know, when you think of other religions like Islam, Islam emphatically denies the Trinity 
And so Allah, their God, is to have existed alone by himself for eternity past. And therefore, because he is alone, he is impersonal and he's distant. He knows nothing about relationships. He knows nothing about love because it's only him. If he were the one who created us, then he, would have, he wouldn't have created any relationships and there wouldn't be any love. He would have created Adam and it, it would have been done. That's how it would have ended. Because all he knows is being alone. But not so with the triune God. Since God is Trinitarian, he formed the woman so that humanity, Adam and Eve, would more accurately reflect the nature of God, the Trinity. I want you to think about how this relationship between Adam and Eve actually reflects the truths of the Trinity. Let's think about this quickly. First, Adam and Eve were companions. They were friends, just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were, are, and always will be companions and eternal friends. As companions, they reflected the Trinity. Second, Adam and Eve were equals. They were equals. Adam named all the animals, and he didn't find an equal among the animals. But when God created Eve, uh, he took a rib from Adam's uh, side, and he created the woman out of the same substance. And when God brought Eve, uh, brought the woman to him, he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is my equal, same in substance. They were both image bearers of God, both heirs of the kingdom. Adam and Eve were equals in order to reflect the equality of the members of the Trinity. The tr members of the Trinity are same in substance, equal in power and glory. There's not one more important or less important than the rest. They are equals. Uh, third, Adam and Eve were diverse. So there's companionship, there's equality, and there's diversity. Uh, although Adam and Eve were equals, they were also different. God made them with different parts and different roles which in some, way, in some way reflects the diversity of the Trinity. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course, are equal, but in their relationship to us, in the plan of salvation, they actually play distinct roles. So God the Father laid out the plan for salvation. It was only God the Son who became human and died on the cross, and it was the Holy Spirit who was then poured out upon the world and poured out into our hearts. There's equality among the Godhead, but there's also diversity. And so our diversity in humanity reflects the diversity of the Trinity. And then fourth, they were united. They were united. It says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That should make us think of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, but yet they're so united, they are in fact one God. And so in order to reflect this, he created Adam and Eve so that the two would be united into one flesh. The reflection is astounding. Companionship, equality, diversity, and unity reflected uh, from the human race reflecting the Trinity. You were made for relationships. God made you to reflect him. Not just because you were lonely, but because as you live in relationships, you reflect the image of God as he really is. You also need to know that uh, marriage isn't the only relationship in which you reflect this trinity. It's in all relationships that you reflect the trinity. Uh, in John 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed, May they all be one, referring to the church, 
May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. It gives us insight into the reflection, the role of reflection that we play in showing the world the relation of the triune God. We reflect Trinitarian relationships by being multiple members of one body. So you know there's, there's a, a much deeper purpose than just sort of being bored and needing someone to talk to. Uh, there's a greater purpose to your relationships, and that's to reflect the divine trinity. It's foundational to your relationships. The third reason. So it's foundational to who God is. It's foundational to your earthly relationships. The third reason is that it's important to understand God as Trinity because the Trinity is foundational to your relationship with God. It's foundational to your relationship with God. The only reason why you have a relationship with God is because he is fundamentally Trinitarian. You know, just a moment ago I read from John 17, verse 21. Jesus said, May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. But then he continues and he says something very extraordinary. He says, That they may also be in us. That they may also be in us. May they be one together as we are one, and may they be one with us. This perfectly relational God, who had this perfect, harmonious, uh, triune community, he actually invites us, in a sense, into this trinity to be with him. And that should blow us away. If God were not Trinitarian, there wouldn't be any community for him to invite you into. He wouldn't know what love is, and neither would we. He would remain impersonal and distant. There's no hope of a relationship with God apart from the Trinity. Delight in the Trinity because it is foundational to your relationship with God. Now the third and fourth reasons are very closely connected. The fourth and final reason why we need to delight in the Trinity is because it is foundational to our salvation. It's foundational to our salvation. There is no salvation unless there is a Trinity. The death of Jesus means nothing unless God is Trinitarian. Let me explain this. We're told that the wages of sin is death. And of course, death doesn't just mean physical death. It means spiritual death in hell. And the essence of hell is eternal separation from the gracious presence of God. It's an eternally severed relationship with God, which of course dooms us to utter misery and despair and hopelessness and eternal weeping. And that's what we all deserve because of our sin. Eternal, an eternal severed relationship. Well, in order to accomplish our salvation, God had to carry out justice for our sins. And not only did someone need to be sacrificed in our place, but more specifically, someone else's relationship with God had to be sacrificed so that we then could be reconciled to God. And so this one who would take our place must have a relationship with God in order for God to cut him off from his gracious presence so that justice would be satisfied and therefore we would be saved. The reason why the death of Jesus is effective for our salvation is because he enjoyed an eternal, perfect 
relationship with his father. And as he hung on the cross, God the Father turned his back on his own son and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out because that perfect relationship was in a sense, in a sense it was severed. And as an eternal being, Jesus paid an eternal punishment in just three hours of darkness there on the cross. Now, we can't understand this. We can't fully understand this because while God fundamentally remaining one, Father, Son, and Spirit, but yet in some real sense, God the Father turned his back on his own Son, and so in some real way, that relationship was broken. And it was done that way to carry out justice so that our relationship would be restored. Without the Trinity, the death of Jesus doesn't accomplish anything. There's an Old Testament story that really illustrates this, and Paul Tripp points this out in one of his books. I think it's uh, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. But he talks about uh, Genesis 15. In this chapter, God is making a covenant with Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham. And God told Abram that he was going to enter into a covenant relationship with him. It was the promise of reconciliation with God, but this is a very serious promise. And to, so to show how serious this uh, promise was, God had Abram sacrifice a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, five animals. And he took these animals and he cut them in half from top to bottom, not side to side, top, top to bottom, he cut them in half. And he took these halved animals and he lined them out with half of, the, half of each animal on one side and the other half of each animal on the other side. And the plan was then for Abram and God to walk down this path together and by walking down this path they would be making this promise. If I do not remain faithful to this relationship, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be torn in two. Well, of course, there's no way for Abram to remain faithful to this covenant. He's a sinner just like you and me. But God knew that. And so instead of walking down the two of them between <clears throat> these halved animals, God put Abram to, into, he, put, he put him to sleep, put him into a deep sleep. And then God, represented by a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, he walked through that divided carcass alone. And by this act, God was promising that if Abram did not keep his side of the relationship with perfect obedience, then instead of Abram being torn in two, God would be torn into two. God would take upon himself the penalty for Abram's sins and the sins of his descendants, which is you if you're in Christ. The price of our salvation and reconciliation with God was for God, in a sense, to be torn into two. The only way that God could restore peace was to tear himself apart. And that's exactly what happened many, many years later. As Jesus hung on the cross, at noon, darkness filled the land 
And that's when God the Father unleashed the fury of his wrath on his own son. And Jesus endured the agony of hell many times over. And the very definition of hell is separation from God. He was torn away from his father in a sense. And that's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This holy, glorious, eternal trinity, while yet remaining one in essence, he was really, in a sense, relationally torn. If there is no trinity, there is no severed relationship on the cross, there is no redemption gained. If God existed in one person, the death of Jesus means nothing. But because God exists in three persons, in loving communion together, when the Father poured out on him the fires of hell, justice was satisfied. And then he rose, and we are saved. Delight in the Trinity, because it's foundational to our redemption. I want you to understand that the Trinity is not some dry, irrelevant theological matter, but it's foundational to who God is. It is foundational to our relationships with one another. It is foundational to our relationship with God, and it's foundational to our redemption. Within the Trinity, we understand the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And this is eternal life, that you may know God as he is, God is triune, and that means everything for you. So delight in him. Join me in prayer. Our God, we thank you that you are who you are. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving us the privilege of bearing your image and creating us to live in relationship with you and with one another. Uh, We thank you, Father, for choosing us to be yours, setting out this plan of redemption, and then by sending your Son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly sacrificed yourself and were torn away from your Father. So that, in a sense, that relationship was severed so that we could be restored. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work of regeneration, causing us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We bow with joy before you. We are yours, and you are ours, and therefore we delight. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to hear Psalm 117b, and then we'll take time in our own respective rooms to, uh, to pray together.